case you don't recognize me and wonder who this funny person is who's, who's standing here, my name is Richard Webb. I'm one of the pastors here at Hope, and I usually hang around the West Des Moines campus, so it's kind of fun here. Um, I just love the worship team here. That was a great version of Joyful Joyful, just very cool. So. We are going to be taking an interesting look at the Christmas story, probably one you've never taken before, and... Um, you just heard the, the Simeon song, and, and I just want to, uh, if you're still in Luke chapter 2, you see that Simeon takes a look at the little kid Jesus, and um, then all of a sudden he breaks into a prayer. Sovereign Lord, as you promise, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. In other words, Simeon is so excited because God is now on the move. The people of Israel have prayed for decades, if not centuries, that God would restore their nation, make them the light to many other nations so that the whole earth would stream to Israel, who would then show them the way of God, the life of God, the path of God, so literally the whole world would become Israel. The whole world would become the people of God. And Simeon is singing, my eyes have seen your salvation, this is now happening. And any honest person with an an ounce of integrity has to say, oh really? Are you absolutely sure, or are you just out of your mind? And I think we have to say that too. Is Oh, really? We've had 2,000 years now, and the world is pretty well just as messed up as it has always been. Where is all this salvation? Where is all this light of the nation stuff? Doesn't seem to be hanging around. And I think this is really important, because... Um, I, I was listening to Pastor Scott earlier this morning. I was at the traditional service over there, and he was talking about the fact that almost every one of us gets our expectations at Christmas kind of dashed. And, and he was talking about his ideal Christmas, and I thought, what are you smoking? Can I have some? You know, I mean, it was just like, yeah, right. Have you ever had one of those in your dreams? Maybe not even in your dreams. And I think sometimes we can feel that way about the whole thing. Christ is born, so What? Now, before you feel like, oh boy, where's this all going? Well, we have some comfort because no later than about 50, 60, 70, even 80 years um, after the birth of Christ, after he died and rose from the dead and went back to be with his father, this was a burning question for all the earlier Jesus followers. They were literally being kicked in the teeth by the Romans and the Jewish religious authorities were going after them with a vengeance. Remember the Apostle Paul? He was one of them, and he was killing them left and right, and it was legal back then to go after Christians. And I'll bet they're wondering, okay, where's all this salvation stuff we're being told about? It's actually gotten worse. You follow Jesus and life gets worse, not better. Whoa. Well, we are actually going to be taking a look, if you want to go to the very last book of the Bible, Revelation, and we're going to look at how that book answers this question. In other words... If Jesus has already shown up, why hasn't anything changed? And I believe that the Holy Spirit of God moved John to write this book of Revelation to address this question. If Jesus has already shown up, why hasn't anything changed? He's addressing seven churches, and he's actually addressing all followers of Jesus in the first century. And those seven churches are like seven different ways that people respond to God or don't. And that's at the front of the book. And you've probably heard all that before. And... What he's trying to say is, God is still speaking. Well, how is that happening? Well, I want to start out by showing you that often, even when things are at their worst, God is on the move. 
Martin Luther, if you're interested, these are one of these things you can impress your friends at a dinner party. Um, he, refer, he often said that when God seems to be most absent, when things seem to be most falling apart, that he's often most on the move. In fact, he, he coined a term for this. I'll say it in Latin just for fun. It doesn't matter. It won't care. Everybody will think you're nuts or showing off, but whatever. It's, get ready to theologica crucis. Say that. Theologica crucis. That means theology of the cross. Now, what's all that about? Because he says that if you look at the time when God was most on the move ever in the entire universe, when was it? It's when there was this 33-year-old guy, young rabbi, who'd gotten caught up in politics of both the Jewish religious authorities and the Roman Empire and executed as a dangerous terrorist on the top of a garbage dump, slowly tortured to death, and everybody thought, well, that's over. And behind the scenes, behind the scenes, God is changing everything. And a little bit of a movie trailer of that is this thing right here. Um, this is one of those cute little manger scenes there. And, and we've got the three wise men who actually showed up several years later, but details. Um, and, but you've got to balance out the scene somehow. So in go the three wise men. And we don't even know it's three. And there were probably a whole company of pagan astrologers at that. But that's another sermon. Um, any rate, you know what the uh, Hebrew word for a manger is? Garage. Or Barn. Jesus is one of the few people, if they said, hey, boy, born in a barn or something, he'd say, well, actually, yes. <laughs> this was the place, usually either in a separate outbuilding or down below, they would house all the animals. Basically, where we would put our cars. So Jesus was born in a garage, and they laid him in a feed trough. And again, this is kind of, you know, God working where you think he's most absent because you have this obscure little kid in an obscure little town in an obscure little house in an obscure little part of the house or out in the backyard with the animals in the stinky, dirty feed trough. And meanwhile, the angels tell us that this is the king. In fact, they use language borrowed from the Roman Empire. They call him Savior and good news of great joy. And that was the language that every Roman citizen knew was only reserved for Caesar. So God's on the move in somebody's garage. God's on the move in somebody's landfill where someone's getting executed. And here, 70 years later, people are wondering where again. God's got to be on the move because it's really awful. And John is going to write. So we're going to start out in John chapter 12. And I'm going to read you the weirdest Christmas story you've ever heard. Get ready. It ain't going to sound like one, but it really is the Christmas story. Listen. Then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. I saw a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant, and she cried out because of her labor pains and the agony of giving birth. Then I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon or a large red serpent with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. His tail swept away one-third of the stars in the sky, and he threw them to earth. He stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. Well, this would be a great sci-fi film. She gave birth to a son who was to rule all the nations with an iron rod, and her child was snatched away from the dragon or the serpent and was caught up to God and his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where God had prepared a place for her for 1,260 days. 
Then there was a big war in heaven. Michael and all his angels fought against the dragons and his angels, and the dragon lost the battle, and he and his angels were forced out of heaven. I'm skipping to verse 13. When the dragon realized that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But she was given two wings like those of a great eagle so she could fly to a place prepared for her in the wilderness. There she would be cared for and protected from the dragon for a time, times half a time, whatever that is. Then the dragon tried to drown the woman with a flood of water flowing from his mouth. But the earth helped her by opening its mouth and swallowing that river that gushed out from the mouth of the dragon. And the dragon was angry at the woman and declared war against the rest of her children, all those who keep God's commandments and maintain their testimony for Jesus. Then the dragon took his stand on the shore beside the sea. Wow, better than drugs. This thing is weird. This is bizarre. What on earth is this? Sounds like something from a Left Behind series, you know, or the film The Omen, part 10 in 3D, you know. Wear your glasses and watch the, the dragon's flood coming at you, wham, you know. What is all this stuff? Actually, this isn't all that weird if you're a first century Jesus follower. There were lots of writings at the time where literally the writers would kind of go over the top to explain that God was on the move. Here's an example just from our everyday speech. Let's say something huge happened to you. And you might say, wow, my world just came to an end. Now, that does not mean that all time and space just sort of ground to a halt. But it is a poetic way of saying everything changed. Or, you know, we have films like The Day the Earth Stood Still. And even though that was a wild sci-fi movie, there's nowhere in the movie that the earth actually, it's spinning, stops. But the phrase, the earth stood still, means something very important happened. So in this style of writing... They'll use these wild, crazy, over-the-top, kind of nutso-bizarre images to get the point across that big stuff is happening. It's sort of like if John had a, a, a MacBook Pro. Of course, that's all he would have. I know. Yes. If you have Windows 7, my condolences. Um, actually, I have it, but uh, it doesn't work very well. Um, any rate, if he had had a Mac, the way he would have done this was with, with bold print and italics, 27-point font, and probably colors everywhere. And that's sort of the first century equivalent of lots of graphics. So what's going on here? Okay, here's this thing. People think of Revelation as this mysterious book that you should decode, and if you finally figure it out, you'll know when Christ is coming back, and you know, you'll know when the earth is falling apart. Anybody see 20, was it 2012? Great special effects, lousy plot, no character development, but wow, digital special effects left and right. Um, a lot of people think that's what Revelation is about, is finding out when that's going to happen. Actually, not at all. It is actually the result of John getting in prayer with his Heavenly Father saying, Lord, all us Jesus followers are getting kicked in the teeth. I'm in prison on a prison island, and I don't know what's going on. I'm supposed to be pastoring all those people. Lord, tell us what's going on. And, and he begins this conversation with God in prayer. And out of that, these are his meditations. And he writes them in the form of a letter and to encourage people. And so what he's doing here in this crazy, over-the-top, bizarre story is telling us what's going on behind the scenes. He's telling us how God is at move. So what do we hear? You heard this. I witnessed in heaven this woman 
and she's pregnant and she gives birth to a kid. There's this big honking dragon. Or another word, a serpent. Now, if you've rummaged around the Bible, where's the first time you hear about a serpent? Hmm. Genesis 3. And that's where the serpent basically talks our first parents into rebelling against God and he begins to destroy things. Well, here he is at it again. And he's apparently pretty powerful. That's all that sweeping the stars out of the sky is a poetic way of saying, yeah, he's supercharged. But apparently not enough. Because the woman gives birth to the kid and the kid's snatched away and the woman's snatched away and the dragon tries three times to to do them both in and just doesn't work. And he thinks, well, I'll go after the rest of her children which is kind of poetic for followers of Jesus. So he goes after them, and that's exactly what everybody's experiencing. They're experiencing evil just coming at them and kicking them in the teeth. And when's it going to stop? And John says, it's going to, and it will not be the last word. And I love this. There's a little bit of satire in there. Did you know that all the way through the Revelation, John makes fun of evil? It's actually a book with a bunch of humor in it. Now, it's first century Jewish humor, which means it's kind of strange. Um, you know, it's like a Monty Python. You know, you, you know there's people who like Monty Python and there's people who think those folks ought to be locked up. Well, this is sort of first century Monty Python. Think of John Cleese as the devil. You know, I mean, you know, the whole thing. Um, and, and this is sort of, just imagine if Monty Python did, you know, things and that's what you get here. So he's making fun of the devil. There's this big dragon. He's kind of bizarre looking. He's strange, he's kind of ugly, and you wouldn't want to follow him. He's been unmasked. The devil has been unmasked. And he tries everything. He tries plan A, plan B, plan C, and the end, and I love this, after all this stuff, he's left standing by the seashore, all tuckered out. And you can just hear John going, Oh, poor, poor widowed wagon, are we having a bad day? Oh, my, yeah, plan A, B, and C didn't work. Oh, poor, poor widowed wagon, poor widowed wagon. Well, Widowed Wagon has a plan D. And so what happens is then the dragon decides to get two of his friends. And one comes out of the sea. And we won't read this. I'll just review this. And he's just crazy. Uh, He looks like this big old patchwork thing that, that was a big old monster that was put together by committee. He's got a head of a leopard. He's got paws of a bear. He's got scales. He's got wings. He's just bizarre. Now, if you're a good Jew in the first century, you know this dude is Leviathan, the sea monster. And he was a poetic character who represented chaos and evil because the sea was a very dangerous people for the people of Israel. They were a land people, not a sea-bearing people. You know, all the Greeks are going, what's the problem? Come on in, the water's fine. And the Israelites are going, nothing doing. There's storms. And so the symbol of all those storms and destruction for them and all their poetry was Leviathan. Except this Leviathan isn't put together too well. And then there's another one. It's a land beast, and he looks like a lamb. And already we've heard about another lamb. John the Baptist once pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Follow him. Well, here comes another lamb. Do you think we should follow him? And this lamb has ten horns on. And in, in biblical language, a horn is strength. So you've got ten of them, you must be very strong. So he looks like Jesus, and he's really strong. Only one problem. He opens his mouth and he's got potty mouth. says that when he opens his mouth, all comes out sorts of garbage. And these two are easily unmasked. And the first century Christians would have recognized immediately what was happening there. John was talking about two ways that evil tries to undo us. One is intimidation. 
tries to scare us into walking away from Christ. Give us bad life circumstances. Make us run into people who, who put pressure on us for standing up with the integrity of God's values. And the other is deception or seduction, where it kind of looks like it might be from God. Yeah, it looks like the lamb. Yeah, that seems to be okay. But John says, just stick around. Stick around. When you feel intimidated, when evil just comes up and hits you, stick around. You'll discover that it's nothing more than a patchwork job put together by committee, and it's falling apart, kind of looking a little worn for wear. And when things seem to be too good to be true, just stick around. Because who's ever trying to mess with your head? Yeah, they'll open their mouth and they'll screw it all up and they'll be unmasked for the counterfeit they are. And indeed, that was the two pressures that most early Christians were experiencing is either intimidation, you've got to go along to get along, right? Or the counterfeit. Oh, well, Christ didn't really mean just trust him and he really loves you unconditionally. Actually, there's some things you've got to do. You've got to clean yourself up before Christ will really like you. You know, whatever that, that habit is, God's getting really tired of that. He's getting impatient. And, you know, he's going to walk away if you don't take care of that. That's a lie. That's a counterfeit. So if I read that Jesus just loved going to all the hopeless cases, all the people that everybody else was fed up with, and then just hanging with him. My favorite is Zacchaeus. Doesn't even tell him to change. Just says, let's do lunch. And back there, those three words changed everything because you did lunch, you were saying publicly, you were somebody's friend. That's the real deal. The guy who walks up to you after you've blown it the 30th time and says, don't matter, you're my friend. Let's go clean it up together. So watch out for intimidation. Watch out for counterfeits. Well, we got some more unmasking to do. So if we were to jump on over to Revelation 17, not only is evil unmasked, but also the evil world system. Now, just a little bit of, of, of historical background. Remember, there's sort of two things that early followers of Jesus are experiencing. One, if they, if from Jewish background, it's this very, very religious and somewhat legalistic culture. And all these things you've got to do, I mean, they have added more rules, like over 600 rules that you've got to keep if you're going to be a good follower of God back then. And then if you're from Gentile background, you've got the mighty, mighty, mighty Roman Empire. And the power of the Roman Empire. Even Jews felt that power because every time they, they kind of acted out of the bounds of what Rome said they could do, the Romans would just swoop in and kill a bunch just for fun. So everybody is under the thumbs of this brutal, nasty empire named Rome. Now, I've got to tell you a little bit. Rome was often also picked in, depicted in kind of this poetic way. Everybody likes to draw pictures back then. So you've got serpents and you've got you know, lambs and you've got, you know, you name it, stars getting swept out of the sky. Well, this isn't just Jews who are doing this and Christians, but even Romans use this kind of picture language to describe things. So the great Roman Empire, especially its capital city of Rome, was depicted as this beautiful, gorgeous warrior woman goddess. You know, sort of like Wonder Woman. She was, you know, dressed very nice and all that. And she was pictured as laying atop the seven hills of Rome. Rome was built on seven hills because she could, because she was taking care of Rome and everything was in order so she could rest. But she was vigilant. So right by her side was a sword. In case anybody was going to attack the Roman Empire, she'd stand up and she'd defend them. And that was how they saw the whole empire, is, is that they were so powerful, they had what they called the peace of Rome. But if anybody disturbed that peace of Rome, you would be taken out. And so she was the goddess Roma. Sounds like something from spaghetti, and you put it in spaghetti or something, you know. Now, got that in your heads? The goddess Roma? 
you know, with the sword. She's gorgeous. She's vigilant. She's just absolutely, you know, powerful. And everything's in order so she could rest. So the angel took me to the spirit in the wilderness. And there I saw a woman. Hmm. Is that Roma? Sitting on a scarlet beast. Those aren't mountains. With seven heads and ten horns and blasphemies against God written all over it. This woman wore purple and scarlet clothing and beautiful jewelry made of gold and precious gems and pearls. She, well, she's wealthy like Rome. In her hand, she held not a sword, but a goblet full of obscenities and the impurities of her immorality. A mysterious name was written on her forehead, Babylon the Great, mother of all prostitutes and obscenities in the world. It sounds like something that Saddam Hussein would say. I could see that she was drunk. Must have been a, a, a freshman rush of the frat party. Drunk with the blood of God's holy people who were witnesses for Jesus. And I stared at her in complete amazement. She's quite the sight. Don't think I'd be bringing her home to mom. What's going on here? Well, again, remember the goddess Roma? This is a satire on Rome. Instead of alert and vigilant, she's drunk off her behind. And she's, instead of lying across seven hills, she's sitting on this goofy beast that looks like straight out of a storybook. Dr. Seuss would enjoy this. And not only, she's wealthy, but she's drunk. And, and this is tricky here. Um, if I were in a small group, I could be more detailed, but I can't do it in front of children. She has a gold goblet full of obscenities and purities of her immorality. You read between the lines. The polite word is sewage. She's drunk on sewage. Whoa, bad year for that wine. And she's also drunk on a more serious note with the blood of those the Roman Empire has killed. Now, why Babylon? Well, if you rummage around in your Old Testament, why did John rename Rome Babylon? Because Babylon was the empire that tried to systematically wipe out God's people. But Babylon failed, and instead God's people started ruling it, actually. You think of Daniel, who became the prime minister of Babylon, and Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego. They were rescued from the fiery furnace and became governors of great provinces, and also key advisors to the king. And you think of Esther the queen, and Mordecai, another prime minister. They're running the country twice, and even for a short period of time, one of their emperors converted. You see, when Babylon tries to take over God's people, usually God turns the table, and Babylon winds up getting far more influenced by God's people than the other way around. Babylon don't get the last word, folks. No matter what's trying to take over your life, God's got you probably there to subvert it. Think about that. If your life circumstances have fallen apart, you're thinking, what happened? Here's the cool thing. I don't believe God causes evil, but God is so good at working it. It's kind of like spiritual judo. Judo is where you take the energy of your opponent and turn it against them. God is infinitely creative with spiritual judo there's nothing in your life circumstance that God can't flip now it may not be comfortable it may not be pleasant and it may take a while but God is at work whether it's your personal Babylon or the empires of this broken world system because they have been amassed for what they are drunken out of focus falling apart a mess now there's one other place and this is a warning to us as Jesus followers. Um, there's another place where we would see a drunken prostitute in the Bible. And this is kind of key. If you were to rummage around the book of Proverbs, there are two women calling out to a young man. And this young man symbolizes anyone who's following God's way. And one of them is wisdom. And wisdom is a woman who wants to marry him 
and be in a permanent relationship with him in a life-giving community. That is a symbol of God's unconditional commitment to us. You see, way back in Genesis 18, God said that I'm going to make a covenant with you, Abraham and Sarah, and if for any reason this covenant is broken, I will suffer the consequences. Think about that. Our almighty God has taken responsibility for our relationship with him. By the way, just a little side trip. Sometimes we're taught here and there that, that somehow if you, that you can blow it and God will walk away. That there's something you can do that's so awful that God's, I've had it, you've broken the covenant. You're gone. Well, except if I read my Bible, even if you go there, God will say, well, I've got that one taken care of too. You see, that's the cross where he took all that junk. Everything you have done, everything that's been done to you, and everything you ever will do or will be done to you, and he has freely thrown it on his own back. And then he went to the grave with it and left it there and rose in victory. You see, God is a God, is a God who would rather die than be without you, and that's exactly what he has done. Or put it maybe a little more crudely, God literally went to hell and back for you. And I ain't cussing. It's the truth. And that is wisdom. We find out later that Apostle Paul refers to Jesus as the wisdom of God. Well, there is another woman, and she doesn't want to marry you. She just wants to have a good time with you and then let her husband do you in. And she, her name is Folly. She's married to someone else. She's married to brokenness and evil and, and self-destruction. And she says, Ah, oh, come on. No worry about little things like commitment. No worries about relationship. Come on, just follow me. I got great wine. I'll give you a good time. And then my husband, destruction, will come in and take you out because he's jealous and he doesn't like it when I have affairs. And Babylon is a way to say, Folks, are you going to follow the path of life, which is wisdom, which is following Jesus? Or are you going to let the counterfeits and the pressures of the Roman Empire or any religious system cause you to walk off that path? What will it be? You place your confidence in the one who will never let you go or are you going to create your own path? So it's not only words of assurance that Babylon will never get you, but it's also it's a confrontation saying, so are you going to believe Babylon's own false press or are you going to believe the truth that Christ has got you and he'll never let you go? Now, that's a bit of the unmasking. Now I want to shift gears. And you can say, yes, okay, we've seen that evil's been unmasked. It's just a cheap counterfeit. It's wearing out. And it can't have the last word. And Babylon's been unmasked at the false paths that'll lead us to dead ends and self-destruction. They've been unmasked, but what's God going to do about it when it comes at me? And then if we were moved together to Revelation 16, we begin to see that. Now, let me just read something here. This is some of the scary stuff. A lot of times if people um, don't know what's going on here, I am at the bulls of God's wrath. Dum, da, 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 dum, chapter 16. And... Um, when you read that, people think, well, man, God's kind of grumpy. He really got up on the wrong side of the bed there. Or sometimes people who are not Christians <clears throat> or just beginning to investigate Christianity read this and get totally turned off and say, why would I want to follow a God who's basically nothing more than a cosmic abuser? That's a serious question. We need to ask that. So let me read a little bit and then tell you what this is about. Then I heard, verse 1, chapter 16, a mighty voice from the temple say to the seven angels, go your ways, and pour out on the earth the seven bowls containing God's wrath. 
So the first angel left the temple and poured out his bowl on the earth. The horrible, with horrible, malignant sores broke out on everyone who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his statue. Then the second angel pulled out his bowl on the sea and it became like blood of a corpse. And everything in the sea died. Then the third angel pulled, poured out his bowl excuse me, <coughs> on the rivers and springs and they became like blood. And you're thinking, yeah, that sounds like a pretty nasty God. Well, if you grew up in synagogue and went to synagogue school and you heard all the stories of the Old Testament, you'd immediately go, wow, I know what that is. That's when God delivered his people from Egypt. Those are almost like the, the ten plagues of Egypt. And John is bringing to mind for all the Jewish followers of Jesus the fact that God is going to deliver them, except this time Egypt's name is Rome. And curiously enough, Egypt's name is also Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem at this time had become so corrupted. You had King Herod. This guy was so screwed up, so messed up, that he wasn't even a Jew. He had been put there by the Romans for winning a couple battles for them, so they just made him king of the Jews, and he was a Gentile. And then he thought, I know, I'll win the favor of everybody. I'll build a temple. So... King Herod the Gentile built a big old temple. Well, there's no way anybody took that seriously because a temple built by the Gentiles, that was already defiled. And then not only that, the priests who were there were so corrupt, they were the best priests Rome could buy. In fact, the priests allowed the Roman Empire to, to install right on the front of their temple a big old Roman eagle. Well, the equivalent would be as if, if for some reason um, Lutheran Church of Hope decided to allow somebody to install on the front of our church a big old upside-down pentagram or a big swastika. You know, and, and it would be like if, if the Lutheran churches in Nazi Germany allowed them to put swastikas up there instead of crosses. And they allowed that on their temple. They were completely corrupt. Not only that, but they were internally corrupt. You went to give a sacrifice and they gouged you like crazy. They charged three and four times as much and the poor could barely sacrifice. In fact, it was so expensive to, to follow the, the temple laws that the poor often just didn't even bother. They couldn't afford it. So you know what the nickname was for the poor people? Sinners. Because they couldn't get their sins forgiven. It cost too much. Jerusalem was corrupt top to bottom and maybe they didn't have the military power and might of the Roman Empire, but they were just as messed up. And so Jerusalem had become Egypt. And so John, under the influence of God's Holy Spirit, is saying, but deliverance is a coming, whether it's the Pharaoh of Rome or the Pharaoh of Jerusalem, God will take you out and, and deliver you and give you a better land. You will no longer be enslaved to broken religion or to a broken empire. Freedom's coming. Freedom's coming. And anybody who's longing for freedom regards that as good news. And then kind of hammering it a little further chapter 17 and 18 and we won't spend much time on that Babylon crashes to the ground twice and see we can tell this is poetic because if this was a straight line novel they literally it, it falls and then it somehow it falls again you know that's kind of weird but John's writing in this poetic poetry way and so he wants to crash it twice to make the point the first time it's crashed by its own evil see the beast is the head of Babylon and the beast takes Babylon out you see evil is like Evil is a lousy foundation for building your life because sooner or later it caves in and takes you with it. You see this when people have broken relationships or broken lives is, is sooner or later it all just collapses under the weight of all that stuff. But then evil is taken out the second time by God himself 
by saying, and God is involved in this justice. God will not let oppression stand, whether it's sexism or racism or any, um, you name it. God will not allow people to oppress people for long. And it will come to an end. Now, it's very interesting because there's two groups of people who respond to the destruction of Babylon. I love this. There's the folks who are rejoicing and those are all of God's people who have been basically ground into the dust by the heel of Babylon or Rome or Jerusalem. But then there's another group. And I think this is funny. This is a little more satire. There's a whole group of business people standing in the outskirts, either in boats or they're standing on hills going, Bummer! They're with the economy! <laughs> Dang! Stock market's going to crash because of that one. And John is saying when you build an economy on greed, on cutting corners, on not telling the truth, it will come down. Now, we kind of have a little bit of first-hand experience on that one recently, don't we? Interesting that that observation was made 2,000 years ago. If This is what happens when you build a whole economic system on the brokenness of human relationships. It comes back at you. God did not design the world to function for long in broken ways. Justice happens one way or another. Now, in the last five minutes we've got, I want to talk about when God shows up and what does it look like. Now, I am on, I believe it's chapter 18, verse 11. I've got to double check this one. And I'm going to start reading. Then I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself, and he wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was The Word of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure light linen, followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God like the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Guess who that is? Jesus. Remember, he was, we heard that he would rule with an iron rod when he got born, and here he is doing it. Now, you'll see this picture here. It, it's kind of fuzzy, um, but I'll tell you something. I had the hardest time finding a picture. I mean, lots of pictures from this scene in Revelation. You just get on the Internet and type rider on a white horse, and whammo, you got more than you can count. But you know what? Every one of them depicts the rider as armed to the teeth with all kinds of armor, swords, spears. I'm surprised he doesn't have a hand grenade in one of his hands. But read it carefully. He's not armed with anything. Just what he says. It's amazing. The same thing is true with the hosts that follow him. Again, all the pictures on the internet have them just armed to the teeth. They're going to go kill everybody. In other words, for some reason, we keep missing what the Bible actually says. And so we paint this picture as one of extreme violence. And actually, it's quite the reverse. Let's take this thing apart. This is so cool. Because this is where we bring it on home, people. The writer is supremely powerful. Yes, he is. But his only weapon is what he says. The word, which is what his name is. In fact, where a sword should be right at the hilt, right by his thigh, instead is printed his name. He wins the battle by speaking truth and grace. 
If you go right back, the same author to the gospel he wrote, he says that we have seen him full of what? Grace and truth. That's his weapon, folks. He has come to make things right, and he's not going to do it by slaughtering people, but by calling them to life. And his army is doing the same thing. They come, oh, I love this. Oh, one more thing. This writer, his, his robe is full of blood. You know, we just heard about the woman who was drunk on blood. Well, it's interesting. This blood is his own. He's not in the business of killing people. He's in the business of dying for people. And he wins the war against evil at the cost of his own life. And he wages the battle at the cost of his own life. Evil is defeated by the death of God and the resurrection of God. And that's the way of his people too. If you were to do a little bit of history reading of the first three centuries of Christianity, what is interesting is the Christians of those first three centuries were known by their nonviolence. And they won more people over by serving them, by feeding them, by loving them, by caring them, and responding with love when they were encountered with violence. And it changed Rome, Babylon, Egypt, Jerusalem forever. Think about that. The greatest weapon that you have is your character. The greatest weapon that God has is your character. This morning, Pastor Scott from North Branch preached, and he was talking about the glory of God. Way back when Moses takes a look at it, is the goodness of God. In other words, God's glory is his character. And when God's glory flows through us, it's his character flowing through us. Love one another, Jesus, the writer said, as I have loved you. And the one called faithful and true, he washed feet and said, as Aster, I have done this, so now as my servants do the same. And the world will know you and will respond and be changed forever by your love. That is our supreme weapon. As I said before, God did not come to slaughter the earth but to restore it. And there's a word for that in the Bible. It's called resurrection. And Jesus was the first. He was the movie trailer of what's going to happen to the entire world. If you turn to chapter 20, there's all this wild stuff and we're going to fast forward it just a tad. There's a resurrection where everybody's raised from the dead. Jesus rules for a thousand years. There's a final battle of radical justice. And then it moves into the new heaven and new earth. And let me just take a second. There's lots of stuff people argue about all the time. People ask, are you premillennial? Are you postmillennial? Are you amillennial? Well, there's two other positions and I, I hold those two other positions. One is, are you promillennial? Yeah, I'm all for it when it happens. And the other is, I'm also pan-millennial. It'll all pan out in the end. I don't need to know the details. But I do know this, that God's going to put it back together. And then God will establish justice. And people often cringe at that. But see, where there is no justice, there is no restoration. There is no peace. Even people who are not Christians know that. See bumpers where there is no justice, no peace? Obviously, God knows that as well. And there will come a time when people need to make choices. What side of the fence will they stand on? Because God will allow evil no more free course. And those who profit off of oppression and evil, they're going to have a bad hair day. But then here we go. A new heaven and a new earth. And I love this. I'm chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and I saw a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared and the sea was also gone. Remember, the sea is a scary place for Israelites. So that's a poetically way of saying, no, nothing more will frighten you. 
Nothing more will threaten your life. And I saw the holy city, the new what? Jerusalem. Now remember, Jerusalem, even Jesus himself has said is the mess. Jesus, Jesus told a story once where he substituted Babylon for Jerusalem and really hacked off the Pharisees. And this messed up, screwed up city is coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there shall be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. I think that the Spirit of God made sure that John used Jerusalem. Because remember, Jerusalem was a place of a corrupt Gentile king with a, a corrupt temple, with corrupt temple priests. They killed their Messiah. They were going after the Messiah's followers. They were completely in Rome's pocket. Who on earth would want to have anything to do with Jerusalem? And when Titus burned the thing to the ground in the 70 AD, there were probably a lot of Jesus followers going, Good, finally! And God's like, Not so fast. I'm in the resurrection business and I can restore anything. I can restore even corrupt Jerusalem. I can redeem Babylon. If Mordecai can be its prime minister and Esther can be its queen and Daniel can run the joint and even Nebuchadnezzar for a brief period follows me, then what do you think I can do to Roman Jerusalem? And what do you think I can do to each one of your lives? No matter how corrupt you've become, no matter how messed up you become, no matter how distorted your sense of self is, I am in the business of making all things new. And as they say in the Geico commercial, but wait, there's more. I love this part. This is the end game. Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life. By the way, that phrase refers to what Jesus offered. Come to me, all you who are thirsty, and I will give you water. And it won't charge anything. And then it will flow not only in you, but out of you. And here we go. The angel shows me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, who is Jesus. It flowed down the center of the main street. And on each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nation. Now, let's just take a look at the direction. That river of life and those trees of life, they flow and they come from the throne of God and the Lamb, and then they flow through the city of God, which is us, folks. Another name for God's people. We who follow Jesus is the city of God. And then they flow out of the city to heal the nations. Think of that. The end game is not just a new Jerusalem, but a new Jerusalem with a renewed people who go and heal the entire planet. Now, ain't that a destiny? You, my folks, are the city of God. Each one of us is messed up Jerusalem and redeemed Jerusalem. Each one of us has followed folly, but has been snatched out of the jaws of folly right before she would undo us and brought to the bride. And each one of us has been given the job to take that water of life and those trees of life and not only use them for ourselves but to give them away 
What does it mean to be a Christmas people? It means to be a revelation people. It means to go out today with the water of life, with the trees of life, and go heal all the folks around you. And what is the weapon we use to wage war and justice? The character of God, His grace, His truth, and most importantly, His love. And this all started in somebody's garage. Think about that. The next time you sing Away in the Manger, know that it's the beginning of the end of evil. It's the beginning of the end of all pain and all brokenness. The next time you blow it big for the 30,000th time and you're tempted just to hate yourself and beat on yourself and think that's what God wants to do, know that that's not God's heart. His heart is the manger. You see, I think they laid him in the manger, which is a dirty, stinky feed trough with spit and barf all in it, because that's the way our hearts are. And Jesus said, if your heart's all full of grossness, well, wow, I'm used to that. I was born in that. I'll make my throne there. Hey, why not? It's great fun. Did it once, I can do it again for each one of y'all. And then I will turn you into Jerusalem, the good one, renewed and restored, and water will flow out of you for the healing of the nations. Folks, hold your heads up high. Because God wants to partner with you to rescue the planet, and he's already started it. Let's pray. Father, what an amazing thing you've written in the book of Revelation, that we are people who will never be broken because we are yours and nobody can snatch us out of your hands. We can't be intimidated out of your life. There's no counterfeit that can lead us astray because you've got us. And the devil can do what he he will and he will be defeated. And our old broken nature can do what it might and you'll still rescue us. And you'll do more than rescue us. You will make us the agent to rescue somebody else. What an amazing destiny to bear your heart, to bear your character, to bear your truth, to bear your grace, to wage war with your love. Strange weapons, but they are yours to bring life. And thank you, Lord, that we get to be part of the fun. So we pray in your name. Amen.